we are we are wrapping up. We're concluding um, the uh, the passage we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks uh, from Matthew 23. So uh, please hold your applause. Um, this is uh, one of the hardest uh, passages of Scripture, uh, that, at least of those that involve Jesus, because it shows Jesus at his um, at uh, his strongest and his harshest. Jesus is um, is speaking what are called seven woes of Matthew twenty three. Jesus uh, articulates this this list of of woes. A, a woe, as we've seen over the last few weeks, a woe is just a, an expression of pain or or sorrow. It's when you stub your toe or or smash your thumb, uh, you say woe. At least you do in the Bible. I've heard some people use other words, um, but. Uh, but not not us good Christians, so um, we would never do anything like that. So so Jesus says, "Whoa!" He says he says, "What sorrow awaits?" Uh, and the specific people he says it to are scribes and Pharisees. Um, and again, we've heard we've heard in the past few weeks, scribes and Pharisees are, are the professional and the amateur religious experts. They're the people who know the most about the the law. And um, Jesus calls them hypocrites, and. Um, and uh, he uses some very strong language. He he says he says that they're snakes. He says they're sons of snakes or or a broods uh, a brood of vipers, uh, a brood of vipers. And he says he says how can they avoid being condemned to hell? And so um, uh, when I was looking at this passage, I was reminded I had a teacher in seminary who said when you when you're reading about Jesus in a controversy with somebody else, don't assume that you are on Jesus's side. At least start by assuming that Jesus has something to say to you as well, and then you listen to that and you decide how much of that applies to you. So, so um, uh, that's what makes this passage so difficult to read. Jesus talking about snakes and going to hell and things like that, and we kind of go, well, hopefully he's talking to somebody else and not to me. And of course, he is talking to the scribes and Pharisees. But we have to ask, how much of this applies to me? Very hard passage. So um, so uh, we look at it and go, well, well, what did they do? What's so bad about building monuments to the to the uh, prophets? Is that a bad thing? Uh, you would think that that would be a good thing. The prophets, uh, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Elijah, the ones we sang about at the beginning of our service, um, is there something wrong with building a monument to the prophets? And Jesus says, no, that that's not the problem. He says, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say... If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with him in shedding the blood of the prophets. He says, the problem is not building the monuments. It's this idea of distancing yourself, of saying that you're different, that you're, you're holier than the people back in those days, that you're more spiritual, that you don't need prophets. Well, they did back in those days, but you're different. You're better than them because they need prophets and you don't. And he says, that leads to a problem because what happens if God sends you a prophet? Well, at that point, you're kind of forced to make a decision. You can say, well, I guess I was wrong. I do need a prophet. I need a prophet to sort me out, to help me understand what I've been doing wrong, what it is that I've been participating in that displeases God, and I need to make some adjustments in my life or or in my society, um, or I can just kill the messenger. And Jesus says, and, and Scripture bears out, that this is what usually people do. There may be a few people who turn from their sin, um, who, who respond to what the prophet says, but down through the years, what we see over and over again through Scripture is that people kill the messenger. 
Jesus says, if you do that, if when the prophet shows up and says, thus says the Lord, and you kill the messenger, how are you going to escape hell? How, how can you turn from your disastrous course and avoid condemnation? How can you do that if you won't listen to the prophets? So that's what Jesus is saying and to, to them back in those days. But fortunately, he's not telling us that because we're different. You know, in those days, people used to hurt the, the prophets. But we're different. We're more spiritual today. And we would never uh, kill prophets in our era because we're different. We're better than they were. Um, uh, we do build monuments, it's true. Um, in fact, I've got a picture of a monument. Um, this is a monument you may have seen down on the Park Strip, the Mount Martin Luther King Monument down there. Martin Luther King um, has a lot of monuments named after him, uh, built for him. There's one in the mall in Washington, D.C., and there's one right here in Anchorage and a lot of places in between. Uh, we build monuments, but we don't kill our prophets. Well, 51 years ago this month, Martin Luther King was in a jail in Birmingham. He'd come from Atlanta to Birmingham at the request of the the local uh, uh, community leaders, uh, the African-American community leaders, and uh, had participated in some nonviolent actions and was arrested and sent to jail. And while he was in jail, a group of uh, white Christian uh, uh, leaders uh, wrote uh, an article saying, we wish he hadn't come, he should butt out, it's none of his affair, this is Birmingham, he should go back to Atlanta. And so he wrote from jail what is called the letter from Birmingham City Jail. Um, and what makes it uniquely interesting among all the different things that Martin Luther King wrote is it was addressed not to society at large, not to society in the South, but specifically to the Christian church. Martin Luther King writes this one letter aimed specifically to Christians. So it's, it's, it's worth reading. And I'm, I'm, I haven't, I should have done this uh, before, but by the time you get home, I'll put a link to it on the church website. So, um, it's a fascinating letter. And he spends the bulk of it, uh, responding to their charges that, that he shouldn't have come, that he's an outsider. It's none of his business. Why doesn't he go back home? But then after he's written the bulk of his letter, he says, he um, he says uh, he he turns to uh, to a new topic. He says, "I understand, you know, he, the bulk of the letter is you're disappointed with me for coming here." And then at the end of the letter, he says this. He says, "I also have been disappointed." So so, and he begins. He says this. I also I have also been disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I do not say this as one of the negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church. And then he continues. He says, when he came to the South, I felt that we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent and secure behind stained glass windows. He says, I've heard some white uh, Christians, Christian leaders in the South say you should obey these new uh, uh, integration laws because they are the law. And he says, 
I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. So it's worth reading the entire letter, but um, that's probably enough to give you a flavor for it. Um, and, and I think it calls into question uh, for us the the real nut of the issue, which is we build monuments today, but how would we have behaved if we were there, if we were uh, in a white church in Birmingham in 1963? Um, he actually identifies there are there were there were white Christian leaders who who stood with the anti um, segregation movement. But um, too few. So, so maybe maybe we would have been on the right side. Maybe we would have been on the right side of history there. But Jesus cautions us about being too quick to say so. He says, "Be very careful about saying you're better than them, because that actually walls you off from any anything God could do to save you." He says, "Be very careful." And if you know something of the history, if you if you think about what was going on back then. Uh, you can you can imagine how difficult it would be for people to to join in the the the, the movement. If you're a church, say you're a church this size, you don't have a mortgage anymore, uh, you've paid that down, and you know that churches are getting bombed because they're involved in the um, freedom movement. You might say, well, you know, um, this is not our fight. This is something we can watch and we can we can um, applaud from the sidelines, but it's not really our business. Um, I'd hate to see our church get bombed. Uh, if you're a minister, you may say, I don't want to be stabbed. Thank you very much. I think it is our, it is our um, nature when we see something going on uh, that, is, uh, that involves danger and risk for us to say, look, let's not make waves. Let's, let's see what, what happens. Let's wait and see. Let's, uh, let's not rock the boat. Let's figure out how we can work together for for harmony, and maybe we can just reconcile this sort of thing peacefully. Maybe there doesn't have to be any kind of uh, nonviolent uh, protest. Maybe we can just work this all out. We don't want to stick our necks out. We don't want to be the one whose church gets bombed. And so we say, just just picture if the CE building blew up right now. How would that make you feel about the pastor who said we should be involved in this fight? We'd be horrified. And so it's easy to say, well, look, this is not our issue. This is not something for us to worry about. And this is, this is the real danger of structural sin. Most of the time when we think about sin, what we think about is the things we do wrong. We think about how, you know, there's this struggle I have. I'm, I'm, I have so much difficulty doing the right thing in these circumstances that I know what's right and I don't. And structural sin is the same thing, but it's where we may not even want to do the wrong thing. But there is a system that is working on us that makes good people do evil or at least be silent in the face of evil. Structural sin intimidates us. It makes us be silent or sometimes complicit in evil. Martin Niemöller was a U-boat commander. He was a... I can't imagine how brave you had to be to be a U-boat commander in World War I. Um, 
but he was. He was a commander in the German Navy in World War I. After the war, he became a Christian minister, and he was uh, um, uh, ultimately jailed by the Nazis in 1938. But he famously said that when the Nazis came for the socialists, he did nothing because he wasn't a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and he did nothing because he wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and he did nothing because he wasn't a Jew. And then he said, and then they came for me, and there was no one to speak out for me. That is the danger. That is the insidious nature of structural sin, is it makes good people who don't even have that issue complicit in the evil of others. But there's good news in this passage. The good news is what Jesus says immediately after asking the question, how will you be saved from being sentenced to hell? He says, therefore, I send you prophets, sages, and scribes. We need to pause there for just a second. Jesus is a hick rabbi who's got no education, who shows up in the big city. He's come from the boondocks. He's got a silly accent. He shows up in Jerusalem and starts telling the religious leaders in his twang that he sends prophets. Jesus tells them he's the one who's been sending these prophets all along. It's no wonder they killed him a week later. He says, Therefore I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And he goes on, So that you may, so the blood may come upon you and so forth. What's the good news? The good news is that Jesus is saying, even at this late date, God doesn't hate you. Even though there is something here that God cannot ignore, there is a structural evil in this society at this time that needs to be addressed. God does not hate you. It is not God's will that people be condemned. So he sends prophets, knowing how hard it will be for the prophets, knowing that they will be crucified and flogged and hounded from town to town. He says, therefore I do these things because it is not yet too late. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired, even in the midst of your sin, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus says, it's not too late. No matter what kind of sin we're caught up in, our own sin or the silent, uh, tacit approval of sin going on around us, Jesus says, it's not too late. He continues to send prophets because he loves us. So what is the application? What do we do with this? What, what, is, what is the goal of, of Jesus' uh, speech here? What is he trying to get us to do? I think the first thing is, is the easy one. The first thing is to say, look, don't kill the messenger. And, and if that were easy, really, I mean, I say it's the easy one, and it is, but but if it were easy, that wouldn't be a proverb, right? Everyone's heard that, you know, hey, look, I'm just, I'm just the messenger, right? If, if that were easy, we wouldn't have that proverbial notion of don't, don't shoot the messenger. So that's the easy part. Don't shoot the messenger. If you hear a prophet, listen. The world's full of busybodies who will give you all kinds of advice, okay? And, and so you're going to have to sort that out. You're going to have to decide 
what's a prophet and what's not, who's a prophet and who's not. Um, and, and there are, there are tools in the scriptures that tell us how we can, how we can determine who is a prophet. First of all, are they speaking in the name of the Lord? Or are they just saying, this is good advice, this is, this is secular wisdom that you should obey because this is how you lose weight or have a happy marriage or whatever it is. Is it someone speaking in the name of the Lord? Is it a prophet? The first question is, is it a prophet? The second one is, does what they say come true? Because the scriptures tell us that if somebody is speaking, uh, purporting to be speaking in the name of the Lord and what they say does not come true, then they are not a prophet. They're a false prophet. So there's things we can do. But we should at least listen and not kill the messenger. But the second application, the second application is the hard one, and it's that following Jesus is going to cost you something. Following Jesus has a price. You don't get, you don't get into the kingdom of God for free. Jesus didn't. Why should we? He says, he says, it's going to cost you. It may cost you the way it cost Martin Luther King. It may cost you your life. You may be one of those people God calls to become a prophet, to be crucified or flogged in the synagogues and hounded from town to town. That may be what God's got in mind for you. Or it may be something much simpler. Maybe you're going to be the one who stands out at work. That where you'd like to be quiet and go along with what's going on, you have to speak out. You have to say, no, that wouldn't be right. I can't participate in that. I know that's the way the company does things. I know that's the way my fraternity does things. I know that that's kind of the culture we have here. And I just can't participate in it. At the very least, it may cause you embarrassment. The novelist Nick Hornby writes a story about a woman who's depressed and she goes to the doctor, can't get any help. And finally, because she's so depressed, she goes to church. Um, This is in England. She goes to a Church of England church. And during the course of this service, she looks around and she sees a man of her age, uh, roughly her age, um, wearing her husband's old leather jacket. I'm looking at my brother, my brother. My first reaction, and this also says something about the state of contemporary Anglicanism and why I suspect my newfound enthusiasm for the church is likely to be short-lived, is to feel terribly sad for him. I really hadn't known things were so desperate that he would go to church. And at the end of the service, they they, they get together during the last hymn. They go outside and he says, I kiss Mark. She says, I kiss Mark on the cheek and look at him quizzically. He says, it's like bumping into someone in a brothel, isn't it? He says, is it? Yeah. I mean, I'm mortified that you've caught me, but then you shouldn't really be here either, should you? Some of us are going to be called to become prophets and we'll be flogged and crucified. Others of us, maybe we just won't get the promotion we wanted. We won't graduate on time because we didn't do it the way everybody else did. And maybe all we have is a little embarrassment. People say, oh, you're one of those. I know where you go on weekends. But Jesus says that if you are going to follow him, there will be a cost. And if you have not paid a cost yet, just wait because it's coming. And if in the meantime... You are intimidated because you know what that cost will be and you know it's too much and you're not ready to pay it. Jesus says, I love you so much I will send prophets to speak into your context, to call you away from that silent complicity. Because he loves us. 
He loves us like a hen loves her chicks. Thanks be to God. Amen.